0: It's the Veterans Radio Hour. Proudly supported by McDonald's and their national salute to the U.S. military. Now, stay tuned for the Veterans Radio Hour next on the TRN Talk Radio Network. Tango, Charlie Bravo. You're a go for the Veterans Hour. Hi, uh, she'll have a Happy Meal, and I'll have the Big Mac.
1: Dad, when will I be old enough for a Big Mac?
0: When you're in college.
1: College.
0: Now, when you register specially marked McDonald's gift certificates at upromise.com, a portion of the value goes into a U-Promise account for a child's education. So, the more specially marked gift certificates you buy, the more you'll save for college.
1: I want to be a doctor.
0: Hello, gift certificates. Sign up for free and get the details at upromise.com.
1: We love to see you smile.
0: Welcome, one and all, to the Veterans Radio Hour. It's our tribute to all of those who served our great nation's armed forces, past and present, and their tremendous accounts of heroic duty and bravery. With your host, Brigadier General Dave Grange. And now, coming to you live from our Veterans Center studio, here is General Dave. Tonight
2: we are going to talk about lessons learned or not from the Gulf War, live from the Veterans Center studio. On the verge of possible war again in Iraq, it is important to understand lingering effects from 1990 and 91 and apply lessons learned the next time if there is war. The Gulf War took 697,000 service members to accomplish, and most were exposed to smoke from the burning oil wells. 400,000 may have been exposed to depleted uranium. Many took experimental anthrax vaccine and other drugs and possibly 140,000 were exposed to chemical warfare agents. There have been 207,000 disability claims with Veterans Affairs and 159,000 were granted service connected disability by Veterans Affairs at a cost of about 1.8 billion annually. Our guests tonight will share their expertise on lessons learned or not from the Gulf War. We have with us Mr. Steve Robinson, Executive Director, National Gulf War Resource Center, Ms. Erin Cole, spokesperson for Veterans for Common Sense, Tim Malberg, office manager and also Batoon leader XO for the Illinois National Guard, uh, one of the companies, and Jeffrey Sachs, Sergeant, Chicago Police Force, retired as an Army major, and now to our executive producer Kenny DeCamp.
3: And thank you, General Dave. We're on our way. This is going to be a very good and informative show. If you have any questions, please call in on our toll-free number eight six six nine two eight two three two nine, or go online veteransradiohour dot com. And if you're already there. Click on to our discussion board and begin a chat room. General Dave.
2: Okay. Tonight's uh, dedication uh, is to a group of people. Uh, Those service members that gave their lives during Desert Shield and Desert Storm. Those that died during training and preparation for that war. And those veterans who have subsequently died from Gulf War illnesses.
0: Here's today's Military Quote of the Day, brought to you with support from Retired Lieutenant Colonel Dan Bogievich.
2: This quote is from the former U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, Adlai Stevenson. And it's appropriate tonight, I think, for this show. And it goes like this. Patriotism is not a short and frenzied outburst of emotion, but the tranquil and steady dedication of a lifetime. Okay, uh, tonight, our guest, I'd like to review a little bit about their backgrounds. First of all, Mr. Steve Robinson, Executive Director for the National Gulf War Research Center. He served with the 10th Special Forces Group immediately following the Gulf War, providing humanitarian assistance to the Kurds. He served uh, the Secretary of Defense's office, working the Gulf War illness research effort. He spent a considerable amount of time working with and helping Gulf War veterans regarding medical care and benefits. He served with the Rangers, just so happens one of my old units and company in fact, Charlie Company, 1st the 75th. He was a long-range patrol guy in Korea, Ranger School, served in Germany. He worked with youth and uh, also volunteered for search-and-rescue uh, training with some of the civilian organizations. A great depth of experience. Our other guest is on the telephone with us tonight Ms. Erin Cole, spokesperson for the Veterans for Common Sense. She's a small business owner in Alexandria, Virginia. She joined the Army in 1987 at 17 years old. Uh, she worked in the, as a military tactical uh, intelligence uh, service member. She was stationed in Ansbach, Germany. She participated in Operation Desert Storm with the 1st Armored Division. She left active duty in 1992 and then spent four years in the Reserves. She's a volunteer at the uh, the Women in the Military Service Memorial in Washington, D.C. Our third guest here in the studio is Tim Malberg. He is a first platoon leader and XO of the 933rd Military Police Company, Illinois National Guard, Chicago. He's a veteran also of Desert Storm, served as a, a military policeman there. And uh, he's right now uh, uh, working uh, to complete a degree, I believe. Uh, Fourth guest is Jeffrey Sachs, Chicago uh, Police Force, a sergeant, um, commissioned ROTC out of the University of Illinois. He served uh, active duty and then in the National Guard and also in the Reserve uh, Reserves, company commander in the Gulf War. Yes, sir and retired in 1997 due to medical disability uh, as a major, and we'll get into that a little bit later. I'd like to open up first and uh, ask uh, Steve uh, the the first question, Um, and that is, uh, the National Gulf War Resource Resource Center is the only organization based in Washington, D.C. that helps veterans with Gulf War illnesses. Could you just give us a quick rundown, explain what uh, your organization does for the veterans?
4: Sure. We're an international coalition. We also work with the United Kingdom and all the other uh, coalition partners that served during the Gulf War. We're mainly concerned with uh, the reason we formed was because uh, after the Gulf War, when people returned, uh, we weren't getting a lot of answers out of the VA or out of the Department of Defense. So we formed an organization and began to organize to put pressure on Congress uh, and the department to answer some of the complex questions that we'll be talking about tonight. Um, we uh, will also be serving the veterans of the next Gulf War because the exposures will be um, very similar.
2: Okay. Uh, let me uh, then turn real quick, and we'll come back to you, Steve. Turn to Erin. Uh, Aaron. Uh, Aaron are you with us? Yes, I am. Well, thanks for joining us tonight. We appreciate it.
5: Thank you for having me.
2: Thank you. Could you uh, just give us a quick uh, mission statement for the Veterans for Common Sense?
5: Yes. This is a newly formed organization, uh, literally just a couple of months ago, and the vast majority of us, the founding members, are mostly Persian Gulf veterans. And the reason that we did this, it's not so much that we're pro-war or anti-war, literally the focus here is on common sense. If we go back to war with Iraq, what exactly is the justification for that and more importantly let's think about the soldier um, coming back both serving over there and when they come back health related wise equipment wise when they're over there these are a lot of um, leftover issues from the first Gulf War that we're still concerned about we're trying to follow up on behalf of the average soldier that will be serving over there
2: well we want to come back to you uh, Aaron on uh... What are the conditions to support the, the war if it happens? So we'll, we'll be coming back to you shortly on, okay. on that particular question. Now, you know, tonight we're going to be discussing, uh, it's going to lead to illnesses, uh, some veterans that feel they've been taken care of, some that may not have been taken care of. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about that. And, and I want to ask uh, uh, Jeff the next question because I, I said earlier that he retired in 97. Well, he's here with me in the studio. He's a gun-ho guy. He's tough. Uh Chicago Police uh, Sergeant uh, did not want to leave the military from what just what I can tell from his body language. Why did you have to leave?
6: Well, I developed a medical disability called Pemphigus after the uh, Gulf War. It came out within a year. and I think it was directly related to the anthrax inoculations which I took when I was in Saudi Arabia. and at the time it was a classified inoculation. And uh, they forced me to retire otherwise I would have uh, not had anything I, I took the early medical disability retirement it seemed it was better to have one in a bird in the hand rather than two in the bush I would have had to go in front of a medical board and I would have lost
2: yeah well uh, your condition and many others we're going to discuss that uh, Steve's going to give us some great insight tonight on that and before we do that though uh, I want to turn a minute to, to Tim because yes sir he's still in the National Guard And uh, if we go to war again, uh, you know, on on television, you hear all these different numbers bouncing around uh, half as many as last time. Just going to be an Afghanistan model, Afghanistan (laughs) model. Other than that, inside out, outside in different types of concepts discussed and all that. And I'm a part of that fray. However, uh, what are your chances of going back for the second time in the Gulf War? And uh, and then I'm going to come back to you later and
7: ask you, what are your concerns? So
2: what's your chances of going again?
7: uh i'd say honestly probably 100 percent just a matter of the timing of when and where yeah so i mean military, small,
2: yeah military police it's right. not a a, it's a uh, small course sir. yeah high demand mos roger that and force uh of choice that's right and uh, i'm sure they're going to need you again because even if it only takes a small amount of force to take down the regime if we do go to war again who is going to disarm and guard all those prisoners.
7: Roger that.
2: So the MPs always have a, uh, a key task for that, and it's it's uh, gonna come to you. Uh, I am gonna uh, ask a question here to any of you guys uh, from a, an email we just got, it's a great question because I just asked uh, Tim about going back again. It's from, uh, who's that, Fozzie, Fo-
3: Fozzie? Out in Colorado.
2: Fozzie from Colorado, and it says, lessons learned, great topic. Are we going to enter a conflict better prepared with protective biochemical suits? I guess you meant than before. Uh, Any of you, what do you think? No.
4: Nope. The answer is no and specifically- Wow, all three said no.
2: Okay, (laughs) go ahead, Steve.
4: Specifically, there was a uh, congressional hearing in which there was a closed session of Congress and then a open session. In the closed session, the Army released an IG report in which they said, and I'll quote from the report, approximately 62% of the Army's gas mask and 90 percent of the detectors it uses are defective that came from Chris Shays uh, that's a big problem
2: yeah that, that is uh, I don't know I've been I've been fortunate the units I've been in uh, before I retired had some pretty good uh, priority um, but the last general purpose force I was in though no, we, we we were we did all right we were still short on some stuff and, uh, you know, this next time around, I would think that Saddam may have the intent of using chemo- chemical biological weapons where before he may not have, but now he has not much, he doesn't have much choice. Do you agree?
5: Absolutely. I will
2: yeah. So it, it is a concern. And uh, so, Posse, uh, I hope that everybody uh, answered your question. Thanks for sending in the email. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and open up with another question here real quick. Um, is there a large number of Gulf War veterans not receiving assistance needed to deal with service illnesses? Steve.
4: Yeah, that's an absolute. There's some people here at the table, uh, actually, and in, in the audience that can also speak to that. The biggest problem uh, for Gulf War veterans is that, and this will be for the next Gulf War too, is that in order, in our current situation, in order to receive benefits from the Department of Veterans Affairs once the war is over, you have to prove that your illness or injury is as a result of something that happened to you while you were in the conduct of war or training. That's called service connection. The problem with uh, the exposures that Gulf War veterans had in 1991 was that when somebody steps on a landmine, you can see the physical injury. When someone is exposed to a chemical agent, you can't see the physical injury unless you do what we now know is a very detailed, costly, magnetic Resonance spectroscopy and that will show the damages that you have We still don't know what the effects are of uh, Certain biological agents that may be employed and there currently is no law or uh, Discussion about how to take care of soldiers should they be exposed to such things upon the return from this Potential next war Aaron do you get involved in uh, any of the stuff that Steve
2: just talked about?
5: Well, literally from that perspective, um, I would speak from personal experience. Um, I have been to a number of VA hospitals over the last 10 years. I've had a number of um, health issues on and off, some of which they treated. Um, Others they were unable to diagnose and uh, still reoccur. And that, in, in my opinion, is a major issue. There's something called the Persian Gulf Registry that I hope most Persian Gulf veterans know about. And despite the fact that the VA is is not the best medical facility, I would think, nonetheless, they are entitled to go to a VA hospital, put themselves on the Persian Gulf Registry, and they are entitled to a free medical exam. And I think that that's very significant uh, for veterans. There are a lot of us out there who just simply don't know that we're entitled to do that, um, nor would they even think of themselves um, as a veteran, per se the way that World War II veterans or even Vietnam veterans thought of themselves when they came back and I think that's a different issue in and of itself. But um, medical problems definitely try to go to the VA hospital, get on the Persian Gulf Registry and uh, certainly go to your private physician as well and and try to get these things looked at.
2: Uh, Tim or um, Jeff, did the uh commissia i guess you say uh hazard area in 1991 u.s forces blew up an enemy uh, munitions dump that contained chemical weapons
6: i am familiar with it oh, were you in that area uh-huh. I, we were in the area but according to the uh we were told we were not
2: uh-huh well the reason i asked that is the army times article here uh Gulf wars poison puzzle they mentioned this area it has two different plots it has a, a chemical plume plotted from 1997 and a chemical plume plotted from year 2000. They're different and uh, oh by the way it has a quote in here from our our guest Steve it's uh, he states it has the appearance that defense officials manipulated the numbers to insert healthy people and delete people who have
4: died. What do you mean Steve? When the uh, first off the uh, the thing here with Comisia and the problem with Gulf War veterans in general is that they've had to prove that their illnesses are as a result of exposure. And the first time that veterans came back from Kamacia, uh and began to ask questions, one of the first things they said to themselves were were we exposed to any live chemical warfare agents as a result of the war? The Department of Defense told them for seven years after the Gulf War, no. There were no live chemical agents in theater. Saddam didn't use anything offensively. There's no reason to pursue this avenue of approach. Well, what we found out in late 1997 was that, in fact, we uh, soldiers from the 82nd Airborne in the conduct of a demolition operation blew up some 122 millimeter rockets at a place called Kamasia that were filled with sarin. Um, Soldiers that were at that location were exposed to low levels of sarin. The department admitted that approximately 140,000 people may have potentially been exposed. But remember, at first they said, well, maybe a hundred people were exposed. And then they said, well, maybe 500. And then they said, well, maybe a thousand. And now we're up to 140,000, two different models, nine different dispersion models for weather patterns. It's a guess. Yeah. Um, the director of the of this organization who did this model came to a conference that I was at and said specifically, uh, I won't use the uh, curse word that he said, but he said it, it's a wild guess and uh, that guess has been used to deny benefits for those people that were exposed there's two abstracts that are coming out in the next two weeks that prove what Gulf War veterans have been saying all along and they're from the Department of Defense and they say specifically that exposure to low-level sarin is harmful and causes long-term health effects watch for that to come out in the news
6: there you go those negative vibes yeah
4: well I'm sure it will uh... Tim, were were you in
7: that area? uh... let's see started off down in Kobar, Dahran.
6: Here,
2: you like, ma- show them this map.
7: Aaron, were you in the area?
5: I never received those letters that they're talking about.
2: Yeah, but you, yeah, but were you in this, the area of this uh, study on the on the uh, sarin? You
5: know, honestly, I don't even know to tell yeah. you the truth. I don't
2: either, actually. Uh, I was in a lot of areas. You know, I, you know, I remember the oil fields. The sky was black. Right, well, flying through right. that. Uh, yeah, General, go ahead, Jeff. General,
6: here's what bothers me about this. My company may have been pinpointed on a map at being at KKMC or maybe at North Camp for the prisoners of war. But the fact of the matter is, I had people running convoy or escort missions all the way to uh, to Iraq and, and the Oh KTO. yeah, you're bringing in POWs back, PWs back, oh, And right? they were bringing it back down helicopters and convoy too. convoy security, yeah, right. And, and you know, it and, and wasn't just me. Transportation companies were out there all over the roads. And I'm sure these people were exposed, but their headquarters, and that's how they, 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 they figure out where these people are at, is based on the headquarters locations. I may have had that's 160 right. people in my company, but they were not with me. Yeah, no, that's a good point, Jim. No,
5: yeah, I totally agree with yeah. that too. We were just talking about that earlier. That people, even within the same unit, possibly even within the same company, could have different exposure levels. If you were out on patrol somewhere, or you're making a supply run, or doing something else, and you happen to be in an area where they were blown up one of the ammo depots, that you would be that much closer to it. Whereas the people, you know, in your company are back, you know, 10 kilometers to the rear or something.
7: Yeah, and what's a Ge- possibility? Go ahead, to In response to your uh, question earlier, General, the company that I was a member of was 257th, uh, based out of Minnesota. We had been at the 403rd camp at the Al-Sarar, uh, near the 300 Field Medical Hospital. We'd been detached my platoon uh, for the month of February, farther north toward and just west of Kafchi at an ammo supply point, which would be just on that cusp, the eastern boundary of that sarin that you uh, showed me on the paper.
2: Yeah, okay. In, a- in
7: addition to that, Exactly what the Major had talked about was uh, we'd run MSR Dodge, which generally run fra- run from that third uh, camp um, to Al baton and to KCAMC.
2: Yeah,
7: so you're going right through that area.
2: Okay. Uh we got about one minute left. I'm gonna put out a little teaser here. Aaron, if you'll st- Aaron, are you gonna stay with us? Sure. Good, because what I want you to answer is uh, it's from one of your newsletters on Veterans for Common Sense or maybe it's a study, I'm not sure. But anyway, one of the points is because troops returning to battle may be exposed to many of the same dangers we faced in 91, the Department of Defense must ensure full force protection in accordance to U.S. public law, and returning veterans must have full and immediate access to the Department of Veterans Affairs when they return home, including health care, readjustment, counseling, and disability benefits if needed. So we're going to go in the second uh, segment, we're going to go into that. Aaron, please keep that in mind and all the rest of you, please. Mm -hmm. Great.
3: This is our 12th program on the Veterans Radio Hour. We thank you all for being a part of it, and especially tonight on a, a, a very important subject that we're expanding on, dealing with what's coming up in our future. We have to thank GIM Productions in Naperville, Illinois, for all the help they've been giving us, and the National Vietnam Veteran Art Museum in Chicago, Illinois, for joining on board with us right now. The Vietnam uh, Veterans Radio Hour is made possible through the generous support of a lot of individual and founder members, so if you can, become one. Just uh, go on to www.veteransradiohour.com and we'll get you plugged in with us right away. Next week's program, it's going to focus on homeland security. That's right, our guests are going to be the Larry Wartzel from the Heritage Foundation, and lieutenant colonel kathleen pennington uh, one of our special uh, friends of dave grange here in illinois as well as we will probably have uh, be able to see major general uh, dave harris once again yeah i think i think uh, he'll be here or he'll call in at least he's going to call in i think he's out yeah. of town so write to a radio station uh, near your uh, hometown tell them you're interested in having them carry the veterans radio hour it's a, a program that we'll uh, just give to them for free even give them some time to sell, some uh, airtime, and we'll be all plugged in. The Veterans Radio Hour.
0: Way anchor, mates. The Veterans Radio Hour now continues full speed ahead on the talk radio network. Aye, aye, sir. The Veterans Hour proudly presents our military hero story of valor.
2: Our hero tonight, Staff Sergeant James Bond Steele from Michigan. Company A, 2nd Battalion, 2nd Infantry Regiment, 1st Infantry Division. Action near Lang Son, Vietnam, 24 May 1969. On a relief mission to save a friendly unit under fire from a North Vietnamese Army battalion, Sergeant Bond Steele attacked and destroyed four enemy bunkers right away. He then ran across 200 meters of open ground under fire to assist another faltering unit, whereby he destroyed four more bunkers and a machine gun position. Wounded by an enemy grenade, he refused medical aid and assaulted, destroying two more occupied bunkers. He then saved an officer's life, fighting an enemy soldier, striking him down hand to hand. Sergeant Steele rallied his unit to fight off enemy assaults until his company was relieved. He had destroyed 10 occupied bunkers, accounted for a large toll of the enemy dead to include two key enemy commanders. Sergeant Bonsteel's extraordinary heroism reflects great credit on
0: himself and the United States Army. The Veterans Radio Hour salutes the active service person of the week, made possible through the support of Pabst Blue Ribbon Beer, as they say, Army, ASAP, Pabst Blue Ribbon Beer, available at your local retail outlet. The active
2: service person this week is Captain Melody Charles. Deployed from Fort Bragg, North Carolina to the war zone near Afghanistan in support of Operation Enduring Freedom. She is married to Chaplain Major Charles, an Army Army Chaplain. They have two sons, Jacob II and Alex, 12. Melody is an acquisition officer for the operation. She joined the Army as a private, became a Russian linguist, went to the green to gold program, was commissioned and became a finance officer. Who are you, Captain Melody Charles?
3: And now back to our guests.
2: Okay, we're back again. We had left off with a key question uh, from Aaron. And Aaron uh, Cole is a spokesperson for Veterans for Common Sense. Uh, and with her here, in a, with us in the studio, is Steve Robinson, executive director for the National Gulf War Resource Center, Tim Malberg, a uh, MP, Batoon uh, leader in the Illinois National Guard, and Jeff uh, Sachs, a Chicago Police Force a veteran. The question I had asked Aaron was about if we go to Iraq again, if we go to war again, uh, what must uh, we do to take care of our soldiers, our, our Marines, our sailors, our airmen, this time around that maybe we didn't do last time. Erin?
5: Well, I think um, really this show here is part of it. It's getting the word out. Ten years ago we didn't even have email, so it was much more difficult to get the word out to soldiers and to keep um, touch amongst ourselves, even if we did experience health problems, that we could even keep track of that within a unit. Nowadays, um, the Veterans Affairs, and again, speaking from personal experience, I've noticed uh, a great improvement And the quality of service, the atmosphere of the the VA hospitals, they are uh, sort of more open, friendlier, if you will. It's still fairly unusual to see young people in there. Um, We all, I think, have the stereotypical idea that most VA hospitals cater to older people, World War II veterans, even Vietnam veteran era uh, veterans now. But if you go in there and you see Persian Gulf veterans or you see people who have been to Afghanistan or Bosnia, it's not so unusual nowadays. And I think that's great. That benefits all of us. because the doctors there and the staff are more aware of the fact that younger people do indeed have health problems that they they do need to be addressed. My concern still is uh, for Persian Gulf veterans, again, the fact that most don't even know that they're um, entitled to go to the VA hospital to get on the Persian Gulf registry, that they can get a free medical exam. Um, They do have readjustment counseling. They do have, obviously, health care that is provided. Uh, I think it's Very interesting now that there's only two major organizations that I know of the National Gulf War Resource Center and now the latest one, the Veterans for Common Sense, um, are the only two major organizations I know of that deal with Gulf War veterans, um, that lobby on their behalf, that are concerned about their issues. And even the National Gulf War Resource Center was only formed back in 94 95, and Veterans for Common Sense was just formed in 2002, just a couple of months ago. So I think really the the responsibility is on us. It's to get the word out, to let soldiers know that um, there are issues that they should be concerned about. They should ask questions along the way. They should find out to what extent possible what vaccines and what shots they're being administered to try and document that in some way so that when they come back, um, they'll have the benefit that we don't. I don't know what shots I was given. No one put it on my shot record. No one annotated that. So if I come back and I go to a VA hospital, I cannot prove to them what I did or didn't receive. So to the extent possible that they're aware of these issues and that they try to look out for themselves um, so that when they come back they'll have more information, they'll be armed to literally with more information to fight for themselves at that point.
4: A great point. I think Steve has a follow-up to that. Go ahead, Steve. Yeah, I would say that the specifics that, that were mistakes in 1991 that need to be corrected are there were poor medical record keeping before, during, and after the war. There was a lack of unit location and information as to where you were to these different exposures. There was no environmental monitoring, i.e. the oil well fires. There was lack of accurate chemical and biological agent monitoring, which is still present today. There was lack of predictive analysis and consideration for downwind hazards as a result of bombing. There was a lack of knowledge on the effect and use of investigational new drugs, um, poor enforcement of pesticide use, and there was a lack of training and exposure documentation Uh, so that soldiers understood what to do on the battlefield should they encounter a vehicle that had been hit with depleted uranium. Uh, Those are just some of the factors that are still present today and have not been addressed.
2: Yeah, there's uh, in the Veterans for Common Sense, they have another point uh, that they're talking about. It says a research shows long-term adverse side effects from mandatory vaccines given to U.S. soldiers deploying to the war zone. According to the product label insert made by Bioport in Michigan, the sole producer, the experimental anthrax vaccine has caused several deaths. And uh, I, I don't know for sure. I know I had the shots. Um, I, I, you know, I don't know. I, I guess some people have had some problems. But you know, in our, in our audience tonight, uh, we have Sam, Sam, Sam uh, Fontino, and he's here. And Sam, you have, uh, is it your son that um, has some injury? Yes.
1: Yeah, could you explain that to us, sir? Sure. Um, my my son served in Desert Storm, and then <clears throat> after Desert Storm, he had finished his tour, he came back, and he decided that he was going to make uh, the Army a career, so he reenlisted and was uh, in the Army for a short period of time and then was sent to Korea. Prior to, to going to Korea, received an anthrax shot, his first one. Uh, shipped immediately over to Korea, received the second one. In between, he started to get headaches, received the second shot, and started to get s- severe headaches to a point where he could no longer do his job. He uh, works on helicopters repairing the uh, sheet metal, and he would get dizzy, and they were afraid he was going to fall off the scaffolding and so forth. Since that period of time, uh, he's not been able to do anything. And, Steve, I'm wondering what kind of information can you disseminate to him and to other people who are having the same kind of problem and not getting any help at all? They're going to release him, but that doesn't solve the problem. Right. Well,
4: the first thing I should uh, let you know is that the vaccine that your son received during the Gulf War has been pulled off the market by the FDA, which indicates that there is a problem with it. Uh, Number two, there's been GAO reports that cite that the vaccine uh, was altered without the FDA's approval, and that produced a vaccine which was 100 times more potent in the protective antigen level than it's supposed to be. Number three, most importantly for your son, is that because of these vaccine injuries that we've started to see from the use of the anthrax vaccine from 1990 all the way up till today, Walter Reed Army Medical Center has stood up a vaccine injury clinic. And if your son hasn't been through that clinic yet, he is certainly authorized and should be sent there immediately to receive the treatment that they provide. Uh, And the last thing is that, um, as uh, the general said, we don't know if the vaccine did or did not cause the illness, but it makes you know kind of common sense that it came on after he received a second shot. The point there is that we're all different genetically, and your son may be, along with other people that have been injured from this vaccine, genetically predisposed to be injured from it, and he should receive care and compensation and not just be booted out of the military without a just cause, just j- just care for him.
2: I WANT TO GO TO uh, JEFF ON THIS, TOO. JEFF, you, WE WERE TALKING EARLIER
6: ABOUT DNA SAMPLINGS. Well, well, would, WOULD YOU EXPLAIN THAT? THAT WAS VERY INTERESTING. I WAS CONTACTED BY WALTER REESE SEVERAL WEEKS AGO, WHICH SURPRISED ME ABOUT THIS. APPARENTLY ALL OF US WHO ARE IN THE MILITARY TAKE AN HIV TEST. WE TAKE IT EVERY TWO YEARS TO MAKE SURE WE DON'T HAVE HIV. THEY SAVED THE SAMPLES. IT WAS RIGHT OUT OF THE X-FILES. I COULDN'T BELIEVE that THEY SAVED THE SAMPLES FROM THE 80s. THEY HAVE MY BLOOD SERUM, AND FROM EVERY ONE OF THESE HIV TESTS, They've saved it somewhere, God knows where, and uh, they want to take a look at it to see if uh, other people might be genetically predetermined to develop a uh, reaction to the anthrax vaccine. So I gave them a release, and I, I hope it works out because if, if they can prove that it, uh, this anthrax vaccine actually did this to me, well, now I've got a good case because the VA certainly hasn't done anything for me. They fought me tooth and nail.
2: Yeah, that's uh, good information, and Sam, uh, we better get on this this thing with your boy. Uh, you can't let that hang.
1: No, I'm gonna get that information to him and I appreciate Steve more than you can say uh, the the type of information that we're getting out across these airways. This stuff doesn't get out to the people, not only my son, but all the other guys that really need it. So, thanks to the radio program and thanks a lot to you, yeah, Steve. Yeah, well,
2: thanks. That's one of our mission essential tasks is to do that. I'm gonna go to Tim a minute. There's one, what mistakes, you know, this is about lessons learned, good or bad, okay? What mistakes have we not corrected from the Gulf War that our service members will experience from uh, afghanistan or Gulf war two tim any ideas can you give us one
7: i think steve had touched on it earlier the improved statements or i should say improved um suits that uh should be available and if you're only talking 90 percent of those are not really operational it's been 10 12 years i don't understand why it can't be done i mean i watched those uh, same c-span and cnn briefings that i believe you were part of and i was Really, uh, very surprised at that. I, I could not believe that that was actually the case.
2: Yeah, good, good comment. We're gonna we're gonna go into some more uh, war preparedness here. That's a good lead-in for the third segment. I'm gonna ask a quick question. It came over the email. Do you think that the military uh, still engages in biological testing of our own troops,
4: Steve? Um, we do know. I was just recently saw some stuff that came out of Deseret. I don't know if they actively do human testing, but they do. Uh, use simulants out at deseret test center in fact they tried to get a waiver recently to release a uh, what's supposedly a harmless agent called serratia um but the uh the inhabitants out there at uh, utah said no
3: okay we're gonna now go and recognize our veteran of the week thanks to our corporate sponsor mcdonald's
2: mcdonald's veteran of the week tonight will discuss leonard uh, Salaby, a McDonald's owner-operator, served over four years in the Army from 1960 to 1965, stationed at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, and Fort Benning, Georgia, and also in Germany. Leonard said the opportunity to develop leadership and responsibility really made his life what it is today. He joined the Army as a private and was given the opportunity to go to Officer Candidate School, OCS, where he made the most of his opportunity. There were lots of opportunities to learn in the Army, he said. Leonard has the distinction of being part of the first Persian missile deployment for the United States. When asked what he is most proud of as a McDonald's owner operator, Leonard said that it is having his daughter and nephew as second generation McDonald's owner operators.
0: Welcome, class, to Daily Economics. Today's frugal foray, the dollar menu from McDonald's. Mouth-watering myth? Well, for miniscule money, you can procure a big and tasty sandwich with hearty beef, crisp lettuce, and juicy tomato. In fact, the tender McChicken sandwich and lots of your other favorites are also a buck each every day. Thus, at McDonald's, less moolah equals more ooh-la-la. Questions?
3: Like, will this be on the test?
0: Not unless you're a messy eater.
3: Got a buck? You're in luck with McDonald's dollar menu every day. Person participation may vary.
0: hour now returns to full readiness on the TRM talk radio network and now with the update on military news from around the world here's General Dave reporting
2: okay uh, we started a new program where we talk about correspondents that are heroes and one we had last week was Joe Galloway tonight I want to talk about Richard Trakoskis war correspondent international news service he wrote the Guadalcanal Diary, which was made into a movie. Uh, Trigakis, uh participated in four marine invasions in the Pacific. Then he went to Italy, covered Anzio, Naturno. Tragakis was severely wounded when a shell fragment went through his helmet and ripped his skull open. He staggered a half mile down a mountain to a field hospital. That night in an emergency room, he had a brain operation. The surgeon took about one half dozen pieces of metal and bone fragment from his head. His speech and physical mobility were seriously impaired. Trikakis returned to action in France, refusing to go on convalescent leave to the United States to our correspondent hero. Thank you. Okay, now we're back to our show and our guest. Just a reminder. We have Steve Robinson, executive director for the National Gulf War Resource Center on, on the phone with us. We have Miss Erin Cole spokesperson person for veterans for common sense. In studio, we also have Tim Malberg, platoon leader, executive officer for an MP company in the Illinois National Guard. And we have Jeffrey Sachs, Chicago police uh, officer, sergeant, uh, who's a retired major from the United States Army. Now, I want to start off this segment, our last segment, with a, a right in front in our chat room from Henry in Berlin, Germany. And he's asked a question Steve, this is probably for you. Uh who funds the Golf War Resource Center and where are you located?
4: We're located in Silver Spring, Maryland and we're funded by individual members members who join the organization and by individual donors who wish to uh to help the resource center in its mission. Um, interestingly enough, I'm just now starting. I've been in the job now for a year and uh we're starting to form a teaming agreement with other people to get some very major corporate sponsorship to for organizations like ours um to just try to get help to veterans you know we're not here tonight to try to prevent a war uh, my organization is here to make sure that the mistakes of 1991 aren't made again on a new generation of veterans so it's pretty easy to buy into that theme uh, we're very pro-american we i love my country i served 20 years um that's the kind of organization we are
2: okay let me go to uh, aaron uh back to to her uh Congressional watchdog wants the Pentagon to keep better better health records. Uh, what are, what are they going to do? Do you do you know much about that?
5: I, I don't know much about that. My main concern with that would be again, um, as Steve mentioned earlier, record keeping in general, both prior to and during deployment and again after the troops came back, um, there wasn't really a standard involved. There there were some troops who knew which shots and which vaccines they had received, some that did not. Um, Again, as an enlisted person at the time, uh, no one told me and I didn't ask. And if someone gave me the order to stand in line and and get a shot, I did that. Um, So my one suggestion for the new generation of troops going over is to whatever extent possible, keep your medical records, make copies before you even go, if that's possible. Um, when you're over there in your receiving shop, ask what they are and annotate it even if you have to do it on your own to keep a journal or something else, which I did at the time. Uh, to whatever extent possible, make sure that you have some control over your own medical records. I would not rely on the VA or Department of Defense to do that for me. Uh, so whatever extent possible, um, try and keep track for yourself.
2: Always. Always keep rec- make records of your stuff. Always make a copy. Yes. Uh, I agree. I mean, that's uh, a prudent thing to do. All veterans out there, please do that because things somehow get lost. Uh, Oh, I want to ask you, this is going to be your final question, uh, Aaron. Uh, It's not fair to ask you, do you or do you not support war uh, with Saddam Hussein? Give me one critical point of why, if we go, what we should be cognizant of.
5: Uh, I think the main point, again, is that our military is as strong as it is because its troops um, choose to serve in it. It's a voluntary force. These people are going over there giving selflessly of themselves just as we did. And when they come back, we need to repay them uh, with respect, but also quality services. They need to be taken care of um, health wise, they need readjustment counseling. Um, I am not, again, pro or anti war. If we do go, Again, the focus here is on common sense, and let's look out for the average soldier.
2: Okay, we got about two minutes left. i I got three guests. I want to
4: quickly do a 30-second wrap-up. Steve? we got to answer uh, three questions. Do we know what we're asking our soldiers to do based on their equipment and their readiness? Number two, is it worth the risk and the cost of war before, during, and after the conflict? And number three, is it in the national interest at this moment in time? we can answer those questions then we'll, we'll we'll know what to do
2: okay
7: jeff
6: hey you soldiers out there you be careful out there and don't count on the va when you come back have a backup plan okay
7: all right tim well being the military police representative on this side that's uh, still in the guard uh, anytime, any place, whatever it takes i've already made that professional decision and uh whatever it takes to lead soldiers to get things done at at the direction of the president uh, i'm ready to uh, do what he has to uh, asked us to do.
2: Okay, Okay, a couple things in summary. First of all, uh, Secretary Principi, I think, is is doing a great job, uh, better than we've had before. And the Department of Veterans Affairs has budgeted up to $20 million in fiscal year 2004 for research into the Gulf War illnesses and other military deployments. This is twice as much of any other year we've ever had before. Now, as we think about how we care about our veterans, millions of them who have served, uh, are we doing all that we should have we met our obligations medically concurrent receipt care for life for world war ii and korean veterans of over 20 years service and other issues like that we used this quote before in a show but i like to use it again because i think it's very appropriate the quote is the willingness with which our young people are likely to serve in any war no matter how justified shall be directly proportional as to how they perceive the veterans of earlier wars were treated and appreciated by their nation. That's by George Washington. Okay, Kenny.
3: Thank you very much. Great show tonight,
2: I want to thank Steve. I want to uh, thank Aaron, Tim, and Jeffrey for being with us tonight. Great guests, great insight shared with our veterans. Thank you very much for your time. You're
3: listening to the Veterans Radio Hour, and you can stay tuned. We're going to carry on this chat for another 10 to 15 minutes. We'll be signing off the airwaves right now, but continuing live on our Internet chat room at VeteransRadioHour.com. WE'RE BACK AT THE VETERAN'S RADIO HOUR TABLE LIVE TALKING WITH OUR GUESTS. AND GENERAL DAVE, WHY DON'T WE take, uh, TAKE UP A LITTLE BIT FURTHER WITH WHAT WE'VE BEEN TALKING ABOUT IN RELATIONSHIP TO THE GULF WAR?
2: YEAH, YOU KNOW, YOU KNOW, WHETHER WE AGREE OR NOT, uh, WAR IS A GOOD CHANCE IT'S, it's, it's AROUND THE CORNER. Uh, IT'S BECAUSE OF THE CHARACTER OF Saddam HUSSEIN. SO, ALL RIGHT, LET'S JUST SAY WE GO, YOU GOT TO PREPARE FOR THE WORST, LET'S MAKE SURE WE'RE READY. That doesn't, that, THAT'S MORE THAN AMMUNITION, THAT'S MORE THAN GREAT TRAINING, THAT'S MORE THAN DEPLOYMENT uh that's also uh at the end of it what do you do a, a, after the the, the mission is complete how do you take care of the people that have served and so we got to make sure we do that because i believe in what george washington said it's very powerful it's the same thing uh year, hundreds of years ago it still applies today and people watch this uh you remember that part of uh, the mission of the show part of the mission of the military is to connect legacy of the military to the present serving military to the future, future being potential recruits, ROTC, uh, those type of things, and you have to bring those all together, and they watch. They watch how they're treated, and they hear these old veterans talking, and uh, it has a big impact. It probably has more impact than any kind of recruiting poster or ad. It's talking to a, 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 someone that's been there. It's done it. Yeah, were they taken care of, or were they not? So I'm going to open it up again, and uh, here on the verge of uh, the second Gulf War, uh, I'll start with uh, Steve and uh, Steve, what, what have we not covered that we ought to share with the people in the chat room?
4: Well um, one of the, uh, I, uh, I was talking to Tim and, and the other panelists and uh, uh, one of the questions that popped up was um, do you trust your government? And uh, you know, absolutely, uh, but where we have to be our own best healthcare advocates. And uh, I think one of the things we haven't covered is that I'm not a conspiracy theorist to say that if you look back over the last 50 years, that when there have been exposures, both uh, chemical uh, organophosphates, Agent Orange, Atomic, uh, Tuskegee people that were experimented on, that uh, it took a long time for the Department of Defense to come clean, take care of those people give them a fair treatment and compensation that you know uh, I'm not a conspiracy theorist to say that. So what we need to do is fix a independent body that can immediately let veterans know what the exposures were. One of the uh, bills that's recently been introduced in Congress is called the Veterans Right to Know Act. And what it does is it says that if there's an exposure or if there's a testing or if there's an investigational new drug that is thought to be harmful, the veterans have the right to know what it is, how it affected them, and how to best obtain medical care and treatment. And it's independent from DOD. It will be uh, oversaw by the GAO or some independent body like the Institute of Medicine or someone else. But we've got to establish that mechanism because of the past 50 years. There's a lesson. That's a lesson. So if we can get that law passed, it'll benefit veterans.
2: Yeah, great points. Uh, Jeff, uh, Tim, anything, just jump on in here. This is on the stuff we're talking about.
6: Well, Go ahead, the floor is yours. Traditionally, we have not taken care of the veterans as far as these exposures went. Agent Orange from Vietnam, the atomic veterans, mustard gas in World War II. And and I mean, they were not. They did not treat me right, that's for sure. But uh, my son just finished his obligation in 101st. He just finished his enlistment. And my other sons are ROTC, and I would encourage them to defend the country because, I mean, uh, I, I never expected the government not to take care of me, but uh, by the same token, it's my country, and it has to be defended. Yeah. That's every citizen's obligation.
2: You know, it's a great point that if I just I just want to compliment the point that you just made, Jeff, and that is that here you felt you weren't treated properly uh, from the complications you had, but at the same time, you're feeling so strong about your, the nation, about service obligation, that both your boys are committed to it and you support it. And so it's not that, uh, you are bitter about service. It's just that when the service is completed, you feel you should be treated accordingly to, to your service.
6: Well, it would have been nice, but the uh, the values that I had when I went in, are still there.
2: Yeah that's powerful, and I, and that's I think I think that uh, you, you you can uh, you can be disappointed with things, but you can still be very proud of your service. I know I am. I wasn't happy about everything that happened to me in the military, but I'd do it again in a heartbeat.
6: And I go on with my life. I don't dwell on it, and that's why I'm on the, the Chicago Police Department's bicycle Patrol. There you go. got to stay fit. Yeah, <laughs> to the yeah. best you can yeah.
7: <laughs> That's right. Uh, Tim, I would focus more on, I cannot believe that the nation cannot afford to take care of their veterans. I've heard that philosophical argument for the last 15, 20, 30 years. Uh, As a percentage of GDP, GDP, last I read, I believe we're at less than 3%, which is concurrent to 1940 pre-December 7th World War II entry levels. Now, if others want to talk about concurrent receipt, you you had mentioned before, General, and all the other cost factors that may go into taking care of those veterans as percentage, I don't see where there's a problem with the financing of it only.
2: Well, I agree with you, and and you know it's 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 about money a lot of it, uh, not all of it, but a lot of it's about money, and uh, but it's an obligation. I I just don't think you have a choice. I think that. If, if you serve the country the country takes care of it. it's a two-way obligation Absolutely. and so I mean the the money has to be found it has to, it has to be done let me interrupt just for a second Kenny has a has a chat room message here he wants to share
3: well wh- one of our guests that's always in our audience every week is uh, Robert from the Dallas trucking and his sister is now turned on to, to be one of our chat room people Eileen and she sent us a nice little chat right now it says thank you to all of our veterans you are all appreciated, and that, that's really the heart and the feeling of many, many people are in this country. I know just recently, um, Dave, you, I think, were on CNN talking about uh, uh, the appeals court in Washington, D.C., who uh, 9 to 4 or something um, stopped a class action suit. in.
2: Yeah, it's a 20-year obligation uh, where recruiters promised World War II and Korean veterans that they would get health care for life. And uh, and the, that decision you just mentioned stated that legally it's not binding. Um, I think that's going to get turned around. I, I, how could you, <laughs> how could you turn down, uh, you know, World War II and Korean veterans? I mean, I just I can't imagine it, and I, and um, interpretation of of the law on that. But I I just don't know how you could sleep at night making a decision. But I, I think it'll be reversed.
4: We what do you, what do you country. think, Steve? Yeah. Well, I was going to say that uh, you know we also made a binding contract with our government just on a raising our right hand and swearing to defend and support the Constitution and that debt uh, you know that debt needs to be repaid uh, how would it how would our nation how do we operate as a nation if the soldiers use the same methodology to say well you know I redig on I renege on my uh, commitment to you and I, I take back my right hand uh, I'm not gonna support and defend.
2: Right, because it wasn't some kind of another contract, but there was an oath of, of, of office allegiance there. Aaron is is uh, Aaron. you're with us still, aren't you? Yes,
1: I yeah.
5: am. Yeah,
2: is Veterans uh, for Common Sense, uh, are you involved in the 20-year issue or the concurrent uh, receipt?
5: No, actually, to be perfectly honest, because we're such a new organization, we're really focusing on, on getting up and running right now. Okay,
2: then take it on. That's another mission for you.
5: Exactly.
3: All right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You know, I, I heard that that also lost because uh, everyone who voted uh, in favor of the government's position uh, were non-veterans, and the four people who voted uh, to go along with Colonel Bud Day, who's been handling this class action suit, those four people all were veterans. Right.
4: Uh, interesting thing is that uh, uh, how this ties in with VA. Recently, uh, you know, the VA requested a certain amount of money for its budget to run. Uh, for a portion of time, and it was underfunded, 275 million dollars in an already struggling organization trying to take care of all veterans. So, number one, we've got to fund that organization. That's the first thing. And if we've got money to rebuild Iraq, then we ought to have money to take care of the veterans here in America that will fight that war. Yeah,
2: you know, that's a great way to look at it. You know, um, and we do have an obligation. We cannot leave Afghanistan. But anything better than it was when we got there. Otherwise, we'll lose total credibility in that part of the world, and anybody that was on the fence, thinking support us or go back to uh, militant support, uh, it would be disastrous for for any future operations in the Middle East. Same in Iraq. But at the same time, you got to take care of your own unit. You know, uh, you always take care of your own unit, and uh, and in this case, it's uh, it's the veterans from a previous. Uh, uh, engagement uh, service. So r- roger that. I don't you go.
4: think, sir, that if, if, for example, the VA or DOD or, or even the president looked at his veterans from World War II from uh, Korea or Vietnam or Gulf War and said, you know what, you, we just don't have enough money. You're going to have to suck it up. Don't you think they would? But that's not what happens.
2: Yeah, it, it's yeah. In other words, there's an impression of deceit.
4: Yes, I, absolutely. Instead of just uh,
2: coming forward, any any anybody in, in the administration saying, "Hey, we we just don't have it." Uh, it's not it's not put out that way though. You're right.
5: Well, it's I think that's the benefit too of having grassroots organizations and nonprofit groups that take an interest in this and that are, you know, veteran-led and veteran-organized, and therefore they keep the pressure going because we can't rely. And the administration to do that themselves it's not in their vested interest to do so we have to look out for ourselves
2: yeah, that's right uh, here, here's a let me uh, interrupt just for a second here's a, another uh, chat room from in Wisconsin does the government have a limited budget for VA benefits <laughs> uh, or is a or is a budget unlimited well I'm sure it's
4: it's absolutely limited yeah. and this year uh, President Bush underfunded the VA's request by 275 million dollars and uh, that causes potential harm to all veterans that go to these facilities, not to mention that the VA is downsizing the facilities to which people can go to. So if you have less facilities and less money, you have more problems.
2: Well, we have that in Chicago right now. We have one uh, closing down. Roy, what's the name of that? Lakeside Lakeside. VA. Lakeside VA, yeah. Uh, And so, uh, yeah, it's happening everywhere here. Chicago is an example of a metropolitan area where that same a phenomenon has taken place. Uh, who determines the budget? Um, now we talk about you know President Bush turned down some stuff, but Congress is deep into this as well. Steve, you're 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 tied into the Washington a little bit, aren't you? Absolutely. Yeah, just real quick, give a quick uh, overview on uh, Congress, VA, President's Office.
4: Well, you you actually hit the nail on the head. The uh, the secretary determines by the need and the people that come and, and get treatment at the VA facilities what his budget requirements will be and he makes a request, then he he sends that uh, to Congress, and Congress either uh, will uh, support that or or not, and then that is sent to the President. And uh, if the President does not agree that the Secretary of Veterans Affairs um, does not, um, has not accurately done the math, then he adjusts it. And uh, unfortunately, the Secretary of the VA said he needed X amount of dollars, and the President said, well, I'm gonna give you less than that, and i'm going to withhold 275 million of what you asked for
3: yeah uh steve you talked earlier a little bit to me about uh, something i think it was called bioport or the manufacturers of the anthrax that's uh, now going through some changes could you could you tell our audience just a little bit about what that was uh,
4: the uh, the manufacturer of the uh, anthrax vaccine uh, currently is a company called bioport it'll be interesting for uh, some of you to know that uh, It has some connections to the uh, former uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff uh, Admiral Crow and also the bin Laden family. Uh, (laughs) Very, very uh, true, very well reported. Um, Also, they're the sole producer of the vaccine. If this vaccine were a tire, it would be the Firestone tire that kept blowing up. It has 11 year history of uh, causing harm. And recently it was pulled off the market, the, the vaccine that was produced from during the Gulf War. Um, there are also class action lawsuits that are going to be filed uh, on, on behalf of people who have been injured from the vaccine. And as I, we stated earlier, the uh, Walter Reed Army Medical Center stood up a million-dollar facility to treat people who are injured from the vaccine. They go there and receive special care uh, as a result of their injury.
3: Is there a phone number, or, or how, how does one find this the- our yeah. anthrax isn't that interesting isolated uh, friends
4: DoD does have a website uh, about anthrax but um, uh, and you can you can look that up uh, I think if you go to uh, deployment link that's www I'm going to pitch a DoD website they have some information there's other organizations anthrax vaccine net that's anthrax vaccine and you can also get information from my website which will and I'm going to help one of the guys here in the audience to uh, just make sure that he receives uh, the the information and access to the programs that are available. It's not widely publicized like Aaron had said that Gulf War veterans have some options available to them. It's not widely publicized that if you're injured from a vaccine, you don't just have to get railroad out of the military. You can actually go to a specialized clinic. Um, but they don't publicize that. So,
2: let me uh, let, let me ask one other one. This is Steve. This is, you're a wealth of knowledge on this stuff, and uh, we got a few minutes left. Let me ask a question. Either to Aaron, Aaron, or yourself. Uh, it's in her newsletter, uh, fact sheet. Um, the Gulf War battlefield remains radioactive and toxic. Scientific research funded by the military, released two years ago, links ex- exposure to depleted uranium ammunition with cancer and rats. Solid depleted uranium bullets ranging in size from 25 millimeter to 120 millimeter, are used by U.S. tanks, helicopters, and planes to attack enemy tanks and personnel carriers. The Gulf War battlefield is already littered with more than 300 tons of radioactive dust and shrapnel from the 1991 Gulf War. Another war will only increase the radioactive and toxic contamination among U.S. soldiers. As of today, US troops are not fully trained about the hazards of depleted uranium contamination, even though Congress enacted a law in ninety eight requiring extensive training, especially for medical personnel. Aaron?
5: No, I will definitely give that over to Steve because I know he knows the details much better.
2: Okay. Yeah. You're champion that issue though, I, I take it.
5: That's right. I mean, that's, that's a major
4: concern. Yeah, okay. Go ahead, Steve. Well, the uh, we I actually help. Uh, we work together kind of on a lot of issues, veterans for common sense, and uh, the the deal here is that DU is a very powerful uh, tank-killing, uh, armor-piercing weapon. Uh, it's one of the reasons why the war only lasted 100 hours. We ob- obliterated their tanks. Uh, when this thing, uh, this penetrator, goes in one side of a vehicle, it it starts to burn and it creates a small hole. And it's going at uh, sonic speeds and it goes through the other side of the tank and sucks everything out through a little hole. But while it's burning, it's kicking off little oxides, little fragments of depleted uranium. And the problem in the Gulf War came, and this is a problem in the UK also, that soldiers were hit by friendly fire by our own aircraft. And our medics and our soldiers went in to get these guys out and they were breathing in depleted uranium fragments into their lungs these fragments embedded into their lungs and we're now at the 10-year 11-year mark where it typically takes time for cancers to develop and we're starting to see problems in the vets Um, there there has been a movement uh, through the department of defense by pressure from organizations like the resource center and others uh, to make sure that soldiers receive proper training and uh, protective equipment if they do have to enter into an environment. I think the uh, the uh, World Health Organization is looking into depleted uranium. Uh, DoD is looking into it. Laboratory studies out of Los Alamos have linked cancer in laboratory animals. You know, when a, when a study uh, that done by the Department of Defense uses a laboratory animal and it has a finding, they say, well, laboratory animals aren't humans, so therefore the study's no good. But when the study uses animals and it's What they want, they say. Oh well, laboratory study was good. So, um, not being a scientist, I just simply say that uh, we we definitely could protect ourselves better. And uh, DU needs to be investigated.
2: Yeah, no, I agree on the investigation. I got to admit to you, I do love the capability of these rounds. It's a great weapon. Uh, I like what it does to the enemy. Uh, And the other issue would be how do you react on the battlefield, even if you're trained on the dangers of depleted uranium to protect yourself in a combat situation with the smell of cordite in the air. Right. Kinda of tough. Uh, so some work has to be done and, and people need to be aware, but it's not an easy task. It, a, that's a really tough task. Uh, we had a, uh, there was a question on the chat room that came in and it says, can Veterans Radio Hour put the links to these websites on the Veterans Radio Hour site, some of the ones you were mentioning, Steve and Kenny, we can do that, can't we?
3: Yeah, I just uh, talked with our chat master, and his big answer here is a big flat yes. So, uh, Steve, uh, before we leave, uh, we're going to have to write a couple of these down for him. Uh, we'll start making these kind of links happen, uh, especially you ne- never got to mention your uh, website.
4: Uh, yeah, please, www.ngwrc.org.
3: Okay. Right. And of course, that stands for?
4: National Gulf War Resource That's good. Yeah.
3: Okay, we're going to wrap up here, Kenny. Yes, we're going to say good night to all our good guests that were able to come. Uh, we do have a little snowstorm outside today, so we thank okay. everybody <laughs> who showed up. Uh, Aaron, you're the only one that's in comfort out in Washington.
5: Right, it was a beautiful day today, too.
3: <laughs> <laughs> hey, Aaron, thanks for taking care of us. And by the way, I need to
2: get one of these uh, St. Petersburg. Uh, figurines. Oh, I, I, I need know, to see what you happy have. To
5: send you, I would love to send you one.
2: Well, I want to purchase one for my spouse. Uh, explain she's it. A, she's a, uh, she was a uh, uh, combat engineer.
5: Okay.
3: Yeah. Aaron, uh, tell us just real quickly what, what we he's talking about, these figurines. Well,
5: basically what I do is um, I commission uh, female military figurines. They're actually made in St. Petersburg, Russia. And I had the idea for years and years, because when I was still in the military and would go to the PX and wanted to buy something that reflected my service, and to send it home or to buy it for myself, there really wasn't anything that reflected female service, you know, female service members. Um, You would see some of the figurines that were male, you know, infantry soldiers, teddy bears and BDUs, something like that, more neutral, Um, but nothing really for women. And I really wanted it to reflect something that was action-oriented, not in a dress uniform, not standing in attention, something a little more realistic. Um, And that's what I'm working on right now. I've been up and running for about a year now, just doing it part-time, but I'm hoping to eventually, you know, turn it into a a full-time, profitable, uh, full-scale business.
3: We have uh, another quick chat room from Jean in Fort Wood, Missouri, uh, wanting, Steve, how long does the Chem Warfare suits remain in commission before they are replaced?
4: Well, the, uh, what's supposed to happen is they have a, a, a natural shelf life once you open them. They're in a hermetically sealed bag, and once you open them up, they're supposed to last for 48 hours. If you have a chemical exposure, you're supposed to immediately after the battle, as soon as possible, get out of the thing mm-hmm. and then change in a, in a tent or some something to get you out of the environment uh, and then change into the other one that you have. That's a great question because typically in my 20-year career, I had the one that I had in my rucksack, and the extra one they issued me. So if the war lasts longer or the exposure is three times, four times, five times, we may not have enough suits to change into. That was actually reported through the GAO. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. And the
2: other thing is if you're in a type of unit that has to hump that on your back, you don't have vehicle support, uh, it's even a different issue. Except takes altogether. up your entire
4: rucksack if you're yeah. in soft.
2: And if it, if the container is punctured, then it's considered uh, the supply sergeant's got to replace it. So it's a very expensive, a very demanding uh, requirement on the battlefield, and that's why, just like urban fighting, chemical biological warfare, radiological nuclear, I guess I to add, is just tremendously difficult, and uh, training is hard to do, and it's very expensive and time-consuming.
3: Well, we could probably talk for another half an hour on this subject. Uh, Please check out the websites veteransradiohour.com. We'll try to link on as much as we can. Don't forget about the National Gulf War Resource Center. Thanks to all our guests, General Dave.
2: Okay. Again, thank you, and uh, big hua to you tonight. And thanks for joining us. See you you next week.
4: Thank you, General.